Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. I am Chris and I am punctuating my sentences really weirdly today, so it seems. How are we all? Very well. Very well. We we talking to us? Yes, you. Oh yeah. yeah. I don't expect a, I don't expect a reply from our from our listeners out there. So if they're shouting in their rooms, listeners. if they're <laughs> suffering, having a good life, these are all. It's all a matter of perspective, Stu. Anyway, True. Um, look, my name is Chris, and I am arting it up this week. Um, I have an interview with uh, Aviva Reed, who is a visual ecologist. She oh. uses art to communicate and to educate about life on Earth and the way the interactions of, of life on Earth. and That sounds incredible. The history of evolution and the future of the Anthropocene. Um, wow. Yes, yeah, so she's launched, shortly launching a book of her work, and so I am talking to her about what that is all about. So we're going to, like, yeah, get all kind of arty, arty big time here in the Lost in Science studio. Stu, what are you doing? Well, I'm farting it up. I'm actually going to be talking about a vegetable that I have been growing in my garden, but it contains a substance in it called inulin, which is actually used in food science a fair bit because it's a kind of starch and they can fill it into low fat foods to make them taste better. And they can fill it into low sugar foods to make them taste better because you can't digest the starch out of it. So it tastes nice, but you can't actually digest it. So it's low calorie and all these things. But that has some downsides to it. Can you find it in your weight loss supplement stores? Yeah, all sorts of places like that. They do use it in lots of the low-fat diet kind of foods. Wow, sounds delicious, Stu. Well, it is Mm. delicious, but it has, as I said, there's a downside to it, and I'll come to that later in the show. Okay. The downside may have been uh, revealed in the first comment that you made. Yeah. Farts. Yeah. Yeah. Claire. Well, I'm not talking about farts today. I'm talking about slugs. Well, much better, much better. Sea slugs, to be exact, and some very interesting new research that has come out um, where researchers have been able to inject RNA from one slug into another slug and evoke memories. It's like injecting memories into an animal. So it ch- changes their behavior. It changes their behavior. Wow. I know. It is like do 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 total crazy zone. What is it? Twilight zone over here. <clears throat> you can tell I'm not the sci-fi nerd here. But that's it's it's very interesting, very interesting indeed. Stay tuned. We will we will indeed. On with the show. All right, you're listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I'm speaking to Aviva Reed, who combines art and science as a visual ecologist. On the 18th of May in Melbourne, she will be launching her new book called Eon, The Story of Fossils, and I have her on the phone to talk about it. Welcome to Lost in Science, Aviva. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, you have a scientific background, I believe. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Actually, I didn't study any science at school. I was right into the arts. And then once I 
got to the university world, I got right into the sciences and started with a Bachelor of Resource Science and Management and finished with a Bachelor of Science majoring in plant science and really just got really into chemistry and biology and geology and sort of tried to cover as much as I could. And once I left uni and um, with my undergraduate, I realised that there was still a whole lot of learning to be done as there is for the rest of my life. And also realised that the only way for me to remember a lot of the information was to draw it. That was sort of my learning, my study technique. So that led to bodies of work and the first body of work, which has culminated in my Eon book, which is a decade long um, research assignment per se, was the illustration of evolution to try and really re- retain all that information. Okay, so yeah, yeah, great. That sounds fantastic. So it's basically you're you're illustrating these scientific concepts. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So what what the process then lends itself to is that you you research the science and um, have to make a whole bunch of decisions around how you're going to portray different things. So that then leads to more questions and more um, inquiry. So in an example of, say, your book, which um, sounds like it covers a very big theme being no less than the history of all life on Earth, how, what, do you, what do you do with your art in this book? Okay, Yes. So after I did my science studies, I actually did move on to do a master's and I did a master's of environment and I majored in education. And it then lent itself to this idea of how can we really comprehend some of these massive complex ideas and, and what some great sort of pedagogical techniques, so learning techniques and coming to know techniques. And I came to find that um, breaking down these big, massive, immense, complex ideas, which is the story of evolution or it could even be at most ecological ideas um, into images and sort of a, um, a rhythmic spoken word which translates that complex science into simple but, but poetic language made it a little bit easier to absorb and um, so that's what Eon is. So for you, it sounds like you're saying that your um, your art and you know, both visual and uh, the words that accompany it is it's about it's about the education side of things. Given given your background, is that correct? Yeah. So there is this sort of um, level of I guess it's science education rather um, rather than research. Some of my other works, which I've done in collaboration with Scale Free Network have lent themselves to more research um, in pushing the research further um, in terms of the art-science collaboration. But, um, yeah, EON is predominantly a science education sort of resource. Excellent. And you do this, um, this sort of stuff in person through workshops, which um, I believe is also accompanying your launch. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I'm going to be doing a live storytelling with a soundtrack. So, Actually, even just today, I've just finished a, a soil biome immersion. So it's sort of a um, an experience which includes sound, visuals, um, and a storytelling element that that takes the the participant or the, the the fellow collaborator, which is what I call the anyone else in the room, on a journey. So yes, there will be a journey. I'm calling it a sonic ionic journey, and um, yeah, through time through. Five billion years. Okay, so at this workshop, people then will, I guess, have the 
they have the chance as well to hear your words and do they also then create their own art as part of it? Yeah, so on Saturday there's a day of workshops, morning from 9 till 11 and then afternoon 1 till 3. And that will be a storytelling, a Q&A, and then we will do our own individual artworks. Okay. Um, which will be exploring the complex ideas around what can be called a multi-species assemblage. So this idea that, um, that everything's interconnected and, and emerges from each other. And is that, yeah, is that one of the key messages from your, from your book as well, is interconnectedness of life and the way that all, I guess all life has evolved from a single kind of origin? Yeah, so there's a few major themes through the book. One of them is the amazing concept of the immense time and the microbes that created an atmosphere that then lent itself to life as we know it. Then the other theme is this idea that, yes, the, um, all the chemicals and the matter is all recycling over eons and eons and eons. So this idea that it may be the calcium of a Devonian fish could be the calcium within your own bone. So it's the idea of, of really embracing the, the nutritious decay that is what I call a, um, a dynamic devotion to decay. Uh- <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> as well as as well as looking back at the the past, I believe you're also looking at the present and the future because you, know, you have a panel discussion about untangling the Anthropocene. Now, I guess for those who yeah. don't know about it, can you tell us what is the Anthropocene? How do you intend to untangle it? Sure. Well, so the Anthropocene's a it's a contentious term, but um, a simple proposition for its definition is that we're living in a in an era, in a geological and biological and chemical era, in which the humans are now the major driving force for, for, for changing the shape of the, the planet. Some people don't agree that we're in a new geological era, and that's part of what the conversations will be looking at. So I've invited a few speakers that are passionate about these topics, and we'll be doing a sort of um, facilitated creative discussion that looks at, um, that invites people to to add to the conversation but also allows the expert to share their their knowledge so is it about working out I guess, what the anthropocene is and whether it really exists or is it about learning how what we need to do to live in it or to to change it yeah so that's a good question so my eon book finishes with this idea of what can we learn from billions of years of being part of an evolving ecosystem and so there is there is these lessons to be taken. And yes, sorry, you did get to them before, this whole idea of sort of interconnection, interdependence, what they call in science, symbiosis, so, so working together. So I think what, from the conversation, we can hopefully draw on the past and, and move it into the present. Um, there'll be, I'd imagine, all sorts of ideas will come up about how we move forward and what change is and whether it's positive or negative or whether... Um, who are the anthros? Like, is it all humans making this impact? Or when did the Anthropocene start? It's sort of a process of, of untangling all those philosophical perspectives. And I, I, I guess I have a idea that any opportunity for deep critical thought in this age where we're addressing a whole bunch of our past, um, what I would call planetary neglect and, and abuse, that it might give us some skills for moving forward. Excellent. And the fact that you're doing that through uh, such a like an artistic medium, I guess it's a great way to do it as well. Well, yeah. So I guess that's like through, what I love about art is that it's sort of anything goes and there's not really any rules in the, in the creative process. And so that allows um, 
unknown um, things to occur. It allows people to to sort of really think outside the box and I, I call it distort our brains because we all live within a constructed lens. So any opportunity to, to deconstruct and reconstruct with more knowledge and more insight and more growth is a good opportunity. Fantastic. Now, these events, I believe, are on at the uh, Neon Parlour, which is on High Street, Thornbury. That's the Melbourne suburb of Thornbury on the 18th, 19th and 20th of May. Uh, how can people find out more about them? Um, well, you can go to my website. So that's www.avivarede.com. Yep. Um, and, the, yeah, there's some links that you will find there. And if you can also find out how to find your book from that website as well. Yep. Yep, you can find it online, and it's also um, in a number of shops in Melbourne. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and good luck with the launch uh, on the weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, That was visual ecologist Aviva Reid. My background is in horticultural science, and one of the things that means is I grow a lot of things in my garden, and if a plant is edible it's all the more likely I'll give it a go and try and grow it. So for years, I've grown a very easy-to-grow vegetable called, well, known as a girasol to Italian gardeners, uh, which I'm pretty sure led to the name Jerusalem artichoke for everyone else. Um, Or occasionally, as it was referred to in a fancy restaurant I was in the other day, as a sunchoke. A sunchoke? A sunchoke. Ah, that's sort of... The first part of it sounds really pleasant. The second part of it sounds um, awful. Yeah. yeah. The only things I know about Jerusalem artichokes is they make you fart. And, I hope um, we're talking about that today, Stu. Are we talking about that? Absolutely going to get onto that. Yes, great. And I once mistook them for ginger and made the blandest stir fry ever. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a sad, sad story. That's a bad day. Didn't you, you realise that they didn't you, smell you like didn't anything? Smell I the... just picked out what looked like a bit of ginger. And yeah, yeah, it was they, they do they yeah. do look like uh, ginger. So uh, the plant itself looks like a tall sunflower, almost exactly the same as the annual sunflower, and it's in the same genus Helianthus, which means surprisingly enough, sunflower. Sunchoke. He- Helios is sun, and mm. anthus is flower. Mm-hmm. But this species is called Helianthus tuberosus because under the ground it produces clusters of edible tubers, which look quite a lot like ginger. Easy mistake to make. Easy mistake to make. They're quite knobbly compared to like potatoes or something like that. Um, but perfectly tasty and they have a similar texture and, as Chris found out, not much flavour contained within. Um, but the tubers are there so the plants can come back each year without producing seed, which they don't actually do even though they flower. They don't actually get any seeds in the flowers. But also, the tubers contain a particular kind of starch called inulin. Not insulin, but inulin. So some people love this particular starch, especially people in food sciences, because it tastes like starch, it has all the flavour of starch, and what they call mouthfeel qualities of starch, but it's indigestible. I can't believe it's not starch. Basically. So is this the thing that makes you fart? Partly, yes. So... The bacteria in our guts don't produce the enzymes to break down these kind of starches, and neither do we. We do produce enzymes that break down starch. We produce something called amylase, which breaks down amylose, which is a kind of starch. We don't produce enzymes that break down inulin, though. 
Hang so, on, so starch is a carbohydrate. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. Is... So starches are carbohydrates which are combined of simple sugars, all sort of stacked together in a very easily stored, dry form. So that's why plants often produce different kinds of starches. And to digest, you basically got to break the starch molecule down into the component sugar. Is that correct? That is correct. Right, gotcha. So the the inulin doesn't get broken down, and so all of the calories that it contains in those sugars that are locked up in the inulin basically pass through to our large intestine. One of the benefits of this is that inulin doesn't cause insulin spikes like other starches do. So when you eat them, they have a very low glycemic index, which is really good for people who need to watch their blood sugar so they can eat as much inulin as they like, and it doesn't actually make their blood sugar change. So the part of our intestinal tract that absorbs calories from starches is the small intestine, which is where all the food passes through first. But when the inulin reaches the large intestine, it gets partially broken down by a different kind of bacteria. The bifidobacteria in the large intestine are generally regarded as good guys in our digestive tract. They help prevent pathogenic bacteria from multiplying and inulin is a good energy source for that group of bacteria. Right. So basically you're feeding up the bifidobacteria in your lower intestine when you eat inulin starch. So a subgroup of inulin starches is a group of chemicals called oligosaccharides, which some people might know as they are related to the FODMAP diet, which some dietitians recommend for irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, FODMAP's um, favoured by people who might be allergic to certain types of carbohydrates. That is exactly right. Onions and apples and those sorts of things. So the FODMAP diet, though, does that mean eating FODMAPs or not eating FODMAPs? Avoiding them. Avoiding FODMAPs. So the FODMAPs are the things that give you IBS. Yes, the fermentable oligosaccharides is one of these things that causes the problem. So not surprisingly, among the other 36,000 known plants that produce inulin, are many that are restricted in the FODMAP diet, including onions and wheat. So they tell you to cut down on your wheat and onions if you've got IBS. So inulin is also commercially extracted from the root of the chicory plant. I don't know if you know the chicory plant. That's like a coffee substitute or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's related to the daisies and Mm. it has these blue flowers, very pretty plant, but they dry out the the taproot of the plant and apparently has a lot of inulin in it. Or you can just synthesize it out of regular sucrose. So you grab the glucose molecules out of sucrose and convert the fructose in the sugar into inulin. Why would you do that? Well, because it's cheaper than trying to extract it any other way. Mm. And you get a very clean product at the end. Mm. So they're using it for commercial applications. Like I said, they add it to foods where they have removed other things. So they put it into low-fat foods so it still actually tastes like something and... Sort of all those all those food science tricks. So yeah, so they do actually industrially manufacture inulin for various purposes. So when the inulin is in the large intestine, it's broken down by bifidobacteria, which helps them multiply and keep the bowel healthy. But it also produces byproducts, byproducts in the form of gas, because there's so much energy left over that we don't absorb. There's a lot of gas produced in the large intestine, and there's really only one way out of the large intestine. Well, there are two ways, I guess. But well, yeah, it's a lot longer to go out the other way. It's the uh, path of least resistance. Yes. Yeah. Despite the potential dietary benefits of inulin, 
uh, as a food science miracle to make low-fat food more palatable. And also, uh, it behaves as a dietary fiber, so they can increase the fiber content of low-fiber foods by adding inulin to it because it behaves as a fiber, and it still actually tastes good, so it can be disguised within all sorts of other foods, which is what they, they use it as that invisible fiber in bread. Oh. It's one of those things that they add. But it seems that the old girasol may have well earned its unsavory nickname of the fartichoke. <laughs> so what are memories? Anyone? Any ideas what what memories are? I feel like I should have a poem prepared at this point. <laughs> This isn't a what trick question. This isn't There's a been trick many question. songs written about memories. <laughs> like the corners of my mind? Yeah, misty water-studded memories. I don't know. It's um, <laughs> Memories are like thoughts of things that aren't there anymore. <laughs> oh, goodness. Look, I think, I think most people would agree that memories are quite a complicated interconnection of nerves between different parts of your brain. And when you make a memory different parts of your brain fire and those neural connections sort of fire together. And that's sort of how memories are developed. At least that's what I was taught at school. Because you had like the whole short-term and long-term memory, like the working memory, like the immediate things you're doing and then things get coded into long-term memory. People talk about that kind of stuff in the hypothalamus, all this kind of bizarre. All that sort of bizarre, exactly. There's whole fields. Hippocampus, not hypothalamus, sorry. Hippocampus. Hippocampus. Exactly. But do you think you could actually transfer memories between individuals? That's that's pretty sci-fi, right? That's that's weird. Like, especially if you were taking a physical thing from one animal and injecting it into another animal and then that animal then having the new memories of something it's never encountered before. I mean, that does happen all the time in horror movies. It does happen in horror movies. It happens in sci-fi. It sounds a bit like weird yeah. ESP, something strange going on. Especially, you know... Someone gets, you know, someone gets a hand transplant and the hand From a like, murderer, takes yeah. over yeah. and tries yeah. to kill everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, this is almost um, like a hand transplant. Scientists have just transferred memories in sea slugs. All right. So it's, 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 it's not humans. It's not the highest organism. and It's not hand, but it is pretty remarkable. So the research has just been published in the journal eNeuro, and the researchers found that if they trained one sea slug to respond to an electrical impulse and then they extracted the RNA or as that is known as the ribonucleic acid, um, so like a copy of certain parts of its DNA from the nerves and then inject that RNA into another naive slug, i.e. a slug that hasn't been exposed to the same sort of stimuli, when they then put that naive slug into or give it an electrical impulse, it responds like it has experienced that electrical impulse before. Okay, so first of all, points for using the term naive slug. (laughs) (laughs) So hang on, so RNA, now correct me if I'm wrong here, you bio-minded people. So RNA is like like your genes are coded on your DNA and RNA yeah. is used to read the information of the genes and use that to make proteins, which is basically the way the genes are expressed and become proteins. Is that right? Yeah. So what are we saying? There's something in this messenger. So it's kind of a messenger chemical. And is that what's being happening here? Yeah. Look, they're, they're not exactly sure of the process of what's going on. Are they as naive as their own they slugs? Might, they might 
movies and I ever saw in slugs. Let me break down a little bit more about what they actually did. So the first thing the researchers did was they sensitised the first sea slugs to these electrical impulses or shocks by applying this electrical shock to the sea slug's tail. They did it over like a 24-hour period and the slugs were trained in responding to the stimulus and they would it would then give them this reflex. It would like train this reflex to um, to withdraw their tails from this electrical impulse, right? They then took the neural cells from these slugs. So these are cells in their like ganglia. Um, so yeah, these slugs have different, they don't have brains like we have brains. They have nerve centers sort of down each side of them. Speak for yourself. <laughs> and, and they then prepared their RNA from these cells. So they had to destroy the slugs, obviously. They then injected that RNA into these naive slugs who had no exposure to the electrical impulses and, yeah, found that they were more likely to withdraw from the electrical stimuli. They pretty much, like, they remembered um, that something had happened before, these slugs. It just seems to me, though, that if you give a slug an electric shock, it will withdraw from the electric shock, wouldn't it? Yeah, but they had a control and the control were actual naive slugs that hadn't been injected with anything. Uh, it took them all to train it to, to behave a certain way. That's yeah, what, that's what yeah. It's, yeah that's, so that's what they're saying. They trained these slugs to okay, behave Okay, so first action. revelation, you can train sea slugs, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, second revelation, yeah, the naive sea slugs that have been injected with the RNA performed a lot better than the control sea slugs that hadn't – the still naive – but non-injected sea slugs, yeah, they perform better than them, which is, yeah, pretty pretty incredible. So, yeah, instead of this memory coming from these neurons connecting, like we think memory does, somehow it's involving RNA and potentially changes in gene expression, which is quite interesting. So now the researchers are trying to work out the identity of these memory-bearing molecules, so what they are... They think it is likely that they are something called non-coding RNA, but they're still sort of – this is all very new research. So it's Has only it been, happened in the last mm. sort of – I mean, this has only been published in the last week. This is, this is damp. The ink on the piece of paper is damp. It is it damp. Um, yeah. and, and, and not and, just because it's been under the seat <laughs> of the slugs. No. <laughs> and And – any other research that you read on this has come out in the last couple of years, so the last three or okay. four years. So is it is it generally is, – is this kind of a, a really new theory? Is, like, is, is this changing everything? Are people going, oh, wow, we, we believe this? Or is this kind of being met with scepticism, do you know? Or Yeah, I mean, I think – I mean, like any new field of research, I think it is being met with um, a bit of scepticism. But, you know, as the field develops and interesting articles like this come out that – it will continue to develop. So there's always been, yeah, I mean, what's really interesting is that there's been this elusive idea of like a physical component or physical form of memory and it actually has a name. So it's called an engram, this physical component of a memory and and this dates back to like 19... 1910, 1911, where a evolutionary biologist who was actually a social evolutionary biologist named Semon um, came up with this idea of a biological molecule that could transfer memory. And so that's that's sort of, you know, it's the hunt for the engram. So um, that, that predates, that that's predates well before we DNA. even knew what RNA and DNA were. Yeah. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
totally. And I mean, it's, yeah, it's just the beginning of understanding the role of memory and how it can be stored in ways other than nerve connections. And the researchers obviously see the results as suggesting that RNA could eventually be used to modify memories, either enhance them or depress them, which is quite interesting. So you could probably, if if such a thing was possible, you could help people with traumatic memories Indeed. getting rid of them or, you know, making them yeah. not remember them as vividly or something. Yeah, yeah. or as my mind instantly went to, um, imagine, um, you know, that you didn't have to make all your own mistakes. You could learn from other people's mistakes. Or you could get reprogrammed as a secret agent going to Mars <laughs> and then freak out and think that you're actually a secret agent going to Oh, no, sorry, this is a movie. This but is this, total recall, isn't it? This, this is a thing. So, I mean, it is – obviously with humans it's going to be a lot more complex. What do you mean we're more complex than C-slides? I'm just saying when people get a blood transfusion, they don't gain the memories of the donor who gave the blood. That's the main thing I'm saying. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. No, obviously, I, I would say obviously that sea slugs have a different – means of doing just about everything really mm. <laughs> they probably share some dna with us but not all of it but you know it's 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 still pretty interesting research it's very interesting research and that is it for another episode of lost in science lost in science is of course recorded at the studios of 3cr in melbourne it airs across australia on the community radio network with the support of the community broadcasting foundation we'd love you to get in touch with us please send us an email tell us what you think of our show at lost at gmail.com or ask us a question you could even do that you could also do that via facebook you can find us we are lost in science on 3cr you can also find us on twitter i think we're at lost in science one or you can find us our podcast on your favorite podcasting app um please if you get the chance go to apple podcasts and Give us a good rating and review because that lifts our ranking in searches and helps other people find this wonderful quality science radio. Um, Or you can just find us on your local friendly radio station once again at the same time every week. Claire, Stu and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.